Welcome to the Ken Robinson Podcast. Get ready for conversation and information from the people who are making a difference. Hosted by veteran Hall of Fame radio and television journalist, Ken Robinson. Hello, everyone, and thanks for calling up my podcast, and welcome to all our listeners in the United States and around the world. On this show, we're going to find out about the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame. We'll also learn about how to avoid seeing a psychologist, how to stop cussing, and how to avoid the high cost of auto insurance. But first, a lot of people are getting into their autos and are moving across the country. According to a report by United Van Lines, Americans are leaving the states of number one, New Jersey, two, Illinois, three, New York, four, Connecticut, five, Kansas, six, Ohio, and number seven, California. ABC News correspondent Alex Stone is in Los Angeles, California. Alex, what do you make of the numbers? Why are people leaving these states and where are they going? Yeah, so there are a couple of different uh, info sources for this, and they all kind of come together on it, that, that folks are saying goodbye to the, the Golden State, and some indications would be goodbye to Ohio as well, that at least for California, for the first time in almost a decade, that more Californians are moving out than moving in. First, the Department of Finance saying that the exodus out of the state is real. Uh, and then there is a new study that United Van Lines did, and you could argue how reliable is it but they say look they do move a lot of people and they they do ask them they do a questionnaire about why and and what they're they're doing and both states are are definitely seeing an exodus in fact they are colored in this color chart of a a large exodus out of the state and where we're seeing the numbers go up where people are moving to are to in many cases not at all but to more conservative areas that are also uh, lower-priced living areas. So from California, most folks are going, according to United Van Lines, and also just based on the numbers of uh, census numbers, to Idaho, to Boise, Idaho. There's actually a campaign in Boise right now to keep Californians out, saying you're not wanted here, don't come here with your money, that, uh, that they're seeing their home prices go up because of it. And you just look at the numbers. The median home price right now in San Francisco is $1.3 million. The median home price in Boise is $337,000. And that number is going up because of, in many cases, Californians coming in with quite a bit of cash. They sell a home for a million bucks in the Bay Area. They go to, to Boise, and they can pretty much buy anything they want and make it more difficult for those in Boise to, to buy. In fact, the current mayor campaigned on jokingly but he was going to put a wall up around Boise to keep Californians out saying that they're not wanted here because they're they're bringing up the cost of living and that's really caught on if you move to Boise you're told get rid of your California plates immediately otherwise you might find your tires slashed or a note on your car telling you to go home so folks are heading there and then you could argue it's that you can live a better life there in the sense of things cost the cost of living is quite a bit lower but also the politics are very different. Gas prices are much, much lower. California, regular unleaded, hovers between around 350 and 4 bucks a gallon right now. It's in the low twos in, in Boise, Idaho. So a lot of reasons for it. And in Ohio, same uh, sort of thing. From United Van Lines, they say 57% of their customers are heading out of Ohio, 
42% are heading in. Wow. Now, I would imagine in California, you have uh, a lot of things at play. You have all those wildfires. Uh, you have occasional uh, earthquakes and other natural disasters, mudslides. And then we have this uh, the whole thing about the cost of living that you mentioned with uh, rents being sky-high, sky-high uh, uh, mortgages to buy homes. That's All that's forcing people to leave California, huh? Yeah, but because of the the numbers are changing from what they were. I mean, we've always had wildfires. We've always had earthquakes. You could argue that the wildfires have gotten worse for a number of different reasons, but uh, we've always had those. So something else here is changing, and some of it may be the economy. There's obviously a, a political aspect to it as well. This is a very blue state. Taxes are higher than in most areas of the country. Uh, and, I mean, that, that's reflected in gas prices and everything else. There is a definitely uh, a population that disagrees with the way that the state is being run. And then you look at where people are going. They're going to Texas. They're going to Arizona. They're going to Idaho, much more conservative areas. And when you break it down, at least from the United Van Line uh, argument of, of what's going on here, uh, of who is leaving, it is an income range of those making 150 grand or more. Now, that tells you maybe it's because they have jobs and they're, and they're leaving for, for work reasons, but also could be those who don't like the, the taxes in the state, number of different possibilities uh, there. But uh, those who are 43% of those who are outbound out of California, according to United Van Lines, make over 150 grand. In many areas of the country, making 150 grand or more, you would live a very, very comfortable life. In California, Many areas, if you make anything below three hundred grand, you can't afford to buy a home. In San Francisco, the number, I think, is somewhere around to buy a very small entry-level home. You've got to be making at least three hundred fifty grand or more a year. And so you, you make one hundred fifty grand, and you can't afford to buy a home, and you're struggling. Those are the folks who are saying, see you later, and they're heading out. And that's why you have the, the, the big homeless problem there now, right? Because people making a lot of money by, you know, Middle America standards can survive in uh, California. Yeah, and again, there are numerous different arguments to the the homeless situation. I mean, some of them it is very much mental health related. That no matter what, they would still live on the streets, uh, especially down in Skid Row and that area. I mean, you know, some of the the folks you could give them a million dollars, and and it, it still wouldn't solve the problem. But there are also those who have told the stories about they want to work, they want to have a home but they just can't survive. If you make minimum wage, which is going up in California, I think as of the first it's gone up to $14, and next year goes up to $15 an hour, which is tough on business, and there's so many regulations on business in California, but at the same time, if you're making minimum wage and the median home price is $1.3 million, how do you live? If you are working in a restaurant or you're a police officer, or you're a teacher, they're not making minimum wage, but they're not making a fortune. So let's say you're making 80 grand a year. How do you live? And that is a, that's tough. And that's why it's difficult now for cities to, in California, to, to hire teachers and hire police officers. In the more populated areas, they may have to live way outside in more rural areas and then commute in. And is it worth it for them at that point? Maybe not. It makes it tough on everybody. Now, the last time I was in California, they told me that a lot of residents told me that, uh, yeah, they deal with the high cost of living. That's what they consider the weather tax. 
what they have to pay <laughs> to enjoy great year-round weather in Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on how you look at it. Yeah, I, I mean, we do have pretty darn good weather during most of the year. Um, I would argue where I live just north of L.A. that it's too hot at times, but, you know. Um, but, it, yeah, I mean, you do get that. And, and there is, depending on where you live, if you live in San Diego or if you can afford to live in the Bay Area or if you can afford to live in a nice area around L.A., you do live a good life. And it, 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 life is good. You've got the ocean right there. You got beautiful beaches. You got the palm trees. But it's if you can afford to live there. And the taxation has gone up. The gas prices have gone up. Uh, yeah, obviously, you know, some when again it comes into if you agree or not with politics. Some people get so angry and they they bail out. But uh, there are a number of reasons why. And uh, but the numbers don't lie. That. And whether it comes from the Census Bureau or the more unofficial from United Van Lines, that people are bailing out for the first time in a long time. Now, I would imagine as a correspondent for the world-famous ABC News, they, they probably take care of you very well in Los <laughs> Angeles. You don't have to worry about the standard of living too much, do you? <laughs> well, we would all like to make more, wouldn't we? <laughs> Absolutely. Now, it look, also, a, a number of outbound states, I'm kind of puzzled why they're on the list, Kansas and Ohio, are also outbound states, places where people are leaving. Now, the cost of living in Ohio is, is, is pretty low, and I would imagine it's the same in Kansas. Why are people leaving those two states? Yeah, well, and, and some of it comes into jobs, and if there aren't jobs available. And when you look at the, the primary reason for moving out of Kansas, at least according to what those who have been moving have told United Van Lines, uh, outbound, 54% of people are saying it's because of a job, uh, 23% because of family, 24% because of retirement. In Ohio's situation, the, the reason pretty much the same. Outbound, 55% of people are saying they're bailing out of Ohio because of uh, a job reason, uh, 20% because of family, 19% because of retirement. But 54% of those moving into Ohio also say it's because of a job. So you kind of got it split right down the middle of uh, you know, those who are going and those who are coming. And interesting, different than California and Ohio, those who are leaving, it's split. Uh, well, I mean, it's really between three different groups right around the same. It's 55 to 64-year-olds, 65 and older, and 18 to 34-year-olds. Those are the groups that are leaving all at about 20%. Whereas California, it was mainly just the, the older population in Ohio it's 18 to 34-year-olds, 55 to 64-year-olds, and 65 and, and older who are saying that, that they're out of there. And again, like California, most of those who are moving, not quite as many, but most of those who are moving are making 150 grand or more a year. 42% of those who are moving out of Ohio are making over that. So and it, some of that may be because they have a job and that's why they're moving and that they can afford to move, uh, but the, the biggest chunk making over 150 grand a year. I, well, I would I would imagine with Ohio, part part of the reason, like you mentioned, is job, and uh, another reason is the weather. The weather is not the best in in the Midwest, the the, the north central of the United States. It's kind of gloomy, cloudy, clammy most of the time, and people, you know, probably getting tired of that. And then we're still in this area, you know, the Ohio area. We're still kind of like the Rust Belt. People consider us the place, not the best place to to be to start a career, I guess. Well, sure, and especially with jobs and the changing economy and automation and everything else, that if it is a 
factory-type job, they may need to go somewhere else, and they, that does seem to be coming into play. So, you know, while there are some outbound states, and it's New York, it's New Jersey, it's Connecticut, Ohio, Illinois, uh, North Dakota, uh, there are those that are, are seeing big inbound, and then where they're heading to, Florida, South Carolina, Arizona, Idaho, Oregon, Washington, uh, and not so much, but still a bit of influx into Alabama, Tennessee, North Carolina, Texas, New Mexico. So for those that are losing, there are also those that are gaining. And except for Washington and Oregon, most of those that are gaining are conservative states. So there may be, at least in California's case, politics involved there, and maybe in other cases as well. Uh, but it's a number of different reasons from jobs to politics to, to other things. And I would imagine for uh, like New Jersey, Illinois, New York, and Connecticut, part of it has to do with uh, you know people wanting more, maybe more space, tired of being cramped together, uh, you know, in tight living spaces. Yeah, I mean, you live in Manhattan, and you look <laughs> at uh, the land that you could buy in Texas or in Alabama, sure, or in the Carolinas, you say, hey, look, you know, we can spend this amount of money and get this huge amount of space. You can understand. I mean, California is a similar thing. I mean, property has become so expensive that you look at what a million bucks will get you and it will be a tiny lot but you can take that same amount of money and go to boise idaho and get 20 acres it's hard to argue against that for somebody who has the means and the the workability to do that or if you are a retiree from the state let's say you don't necessarily work in silicon valley and just have a load of cash but under the california retirement program for public workers calpers uh, that you could be a California Highway Patrol officer, you had some rank, let's say you were making two two thirty a year, under the CalPERS plan, you may retire for the rest of your life making $170, $180 a year, that if you've got that retirement coming in, in retirement, and you can move and use that in Idaho and get out of the high cost of living in California, why not? You can't blame anybody for making that choice. Yeah, so I guess the bottom line is people are pretty smart. It doesn't look like <laughs> people are no longer fooled by the glamour of living in New York or L.A. It no, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it could be that they're no longer fooled by it or they, they don't agree with the lifestyle there or it's just too darn expensive. But, yeah, I mean, people, they're definitely bailing. And at least in the case of California, they're saying, Idaho, here we come. And Idaho is saying, no, thank you, don't come here. But, uh, but they're heading that way. And I guess uh, the United States is going to look a lot different 50 years from now, you think? Oh, absolutely. Uh, based on income, jobs, politics, all of that. I mean, we're seeing it right now. Give it a few more years, and, and yeah, that map may look totally different. Well, very good. Really appreciate the insight. You got it. Have a great day. You. Yeah, you nice too. Nice talking to you as well. All right, very good. ABC News correspondent Alex Stone reporting on 2019 findings from United Van Lines that indicate people are leaving New Jersey, Illinois, New York, Connecticut, Kansas, Ohio, and California. Most of those leaving are ages 65 and older, followed by people between the ages of 55 to 64. Well, if you're hitting the road, you might want to stop by a very unique attraction during your travels. The National Bobblehead Hall of Fame. That's coming up right after this break. Are you tired of slow, clunky internet browsers? Say goodbye to frustration and hello to a faster, safer online experience with Mozilla Firefox. 
With Firefox, you'll enjoy lightning-fast browsing speeds, ensuring that your favorite websites load in the blink of an eye. But it doesn't stop there. Firefox prioritizes your privacy and security, keeping your personal information safe from prying eyes. Plus, with a wide range of features and add-ons, you can customize your browser to fit your needs and style. Join the millions of satisfied users who trust Firefox for their online adventures. Download Mozilla Firefox today and experience the web like never before. Mozilla Firefox, your fast, secure, and personalized gateway to the digital world. I'm Ken Robinson, now back to the podcast. A bobblehead, also known as a nodder, wobbler, is a type of collectible doll. Its head is often oversized compared to its body. Instead of a solid connection, its head is connected to the body by a spring or a hook in such a way that a light tap will cause the head to bobble, hence the name. Bobbleheads have been around since the 17th century when Figurines of Buddha and other religious icons called temple nodders were produced in Asia. Did you know that there's a museum for these figurines? It's the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and it's located in the state of Wisconsin. Co-founder and CEO Phil Sklar joins us on the line from the city of Milwaukee. So Phil, tell us about your museum. Yeah, we have uh, 6,500 unique bobbleheads, all different types from sports to non-sports. Bobblehead Bob Manick, who donated uh, his collection of over 1,500 unique bobbleheads uh, a few years back, and we have a nice plaque honoring him. He was from Akron uh, area and um, decided to donate his entire collection when he had a terminal uh, cancer and wanted his collection to be viewed by the public. So we're really thankful for his donation. So many other people and teams who have sent in bobbleheads uh, just so many different types, baseball, basketball, you know, all your non-sports like Star Wars and Wizard of Oz and movie characters, Simpsons and anything and everything you can think of. And then also uh, stories about the bobbleheads, how they're made, the history behind them and really anything and everything you've ever wanted to know about. them. Wow. Is that how you get most of your collections from from donations? Yeah. So it started as a personal collection with me and the other co-founder uh, built up a collection over about 10 years. And we also started to produce bobbleheads at that time, uh, towards the end of that 2014 timeframe, when our collection was growing out of control at the same time. And we had a great experience with that. So we put the two ideas together and here we are with the museum, uh, only one of its kind in the world. And uh, we've had visitors. We opened February 1st of 2019 and had visitors now from all 50 states and about 25 different countries since opening. Did you think bobbleheads were going to become a sensation like they have now? I mean, I, I can only think back so far when I, you know, first became aware of bobbleheads, but who would have thought that they're, they're, they're like little icons now? Yeah, they have become sort of that pop culture icon. You know, they say you've made it once you have a bobblehead, and uh, there's 
still a lot of people and characters that we're working on uh, getting bobbleheads for. But, uh, yeah, it's just uh, really become something that uh, people love to use to symbolize their you know favorite team or characters or moments uh, that they want to celebrate. And, you know, it's, uh, it's really taken off since the 1960s when they first uh, became popular in the U.S. with sports bobbleheads, and then again in 1999 when the San Francisco Giants gave away the first bobblehead at a sporting event. What's the oldest bobblehead in your uh, collection? Yeah, so we have some that date back around uh, the late 1800s, early 1900s. Bobbleheads themselves actually date back to the late 1700s, and we're working on getting a couple examples of those, but they're quite valuable and sometimes in the thirty to $40,000 range for some of the very first known bobbleheads, which are more like figurines, but had heads that uh, had a little bit of a wobble to them. They were on a little swivel. I had no idea. The, the 1700s, 17 and 18. I didn't know bobbleheads had been around that long. <laughs> yeah, definitely not the uh, bobbleheads that most people think of when you think of an Indian's or a you know, calves bobblehead, but uh, they are, uh, they definitely have a rich history, uh, much longer and uh, more complex than uh, most people would ever dream of uh, thinking. Well, I would imagine you have bobbleheads of probably just about anybody that's uh, been in sports, especially baseball and basketball and football. Is is that a correct assumption on my part? Yes. Yeah, it's pretty well represented. We usually have, you know, somebody says, hey, do you have a bobblehead of, uh, you know, Barry Larkin? We can go find uh several of them in the collection or, you know, even some of the uh, players that might not have been as well known, but some of the, you know, the legends and hall of famers have more like, you know, Jim Tomei or, uh, you know, some of the award winners like Corey Kluber have multiple bobbleheads, but yeah, it's definitely interesting too, to see the progression throughout the years. They've gotten more complex, more lifelike. Um, You can do more things with the poses and, you know, make them a little bit more fun. What's the most unusual bobblehead you think you have? Um, so probably when I was just looking at, uh, as we were talking here, walking around the museum by myself since we've been closed for a while, but uh, the Charleston River Dogs gave away a bobble bust, which was uh, for breast cancer awareness. So it was a good cause, but we get a lot of people who stop and look at that, wondering you know, why there's a, a female bust uh Bobbling, but uh, definitely has a good cause. The money went, some money went to charity, and it raised uh, awareness and, and funds for that. But there's quite a few really unique ones and out of out of the ordinary bobbleheads that you'll find. I can I, I can imagine. I bet it gets a lot of attention. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> well, that's amazing. You have, and so you probably have uh, the minor leagues too. I guess the minor leagues uh, have bobblehead nights and everything, and. Uh, so are bobbleheads, uh, you know, so popular that they're becoming like a, an investment now, like stamp collecting and paintings and, and, and items like that? Yeah, there are uh, definitely a lot of examples where you can look at bobbleheads and say, you know, this one used to sell for $30 or it was given away at a game for free and now it's selling for sometimes in the $1,000 or plus range. You know, there's a brewers giveaway you know probably now it's about 10 years ago where you know a thousand special tickets you buy the tickets in advance were guaranteed the bobblehead and uh, now that bobblehead's selling for 800 900 dollars um on ebay and in transactions so it's yeah it's definitely something where 
there's quite a few people who have made some some good money by buying some extra ones or getting some extra ones at games and you know putting them aside for a while and you know down the road value can really increase do you think it's kind of like a you know baseball card a you know sports card uh, collections and, and that's why it's growing so much in uh, popularity yeah i think it's part part of it is that the other part is you know sports cards in a lot of cases are you know there's millions produced so you know some of those cards from the 90s that at one point were worth so much money you know a ken griffey junior rookie card selling for hundreds of dollars and then people sort of realize there's a million of them out there um, with bobbleheads most of them are produced in smaller numbers so sometimes only you know from as little as 100 to you know even a giveaway at the giant you know giants or dodgers game may only have 20,000 or 40,000 max which is still a lot fewer than um you know any standard baseball card or sports card so yeah there definitely is that aspect a lot of the bobbleheads that we produce are individually numbered um so that makes them even more collectible you know you know that there's only smaller number out there and once they're gone they're gone yeah yeah well are there any uh bobbleheads that you're actively seeking you know uh, maybe even non-sporting bobbleheads that you'd like to get your hands on yeah there's quite a few um we don't definitely don't have them all uh we're actively looking for some more of the hockey and basketball bobbleheads from the 60s those are uh quite hard to find and there's also some political and other ones from the 60s that are pretty rare and difficult to come by so we're always looking for those and then also some of the supreme court justices are hard to find and uh, have become big collectibles and uh so definitely not ones that most people would think about when they're thinking about bobbleheads but yeah the supreme court justices are some of the more rare do do you have a hand in deciding what bobbleheads are going to be made you know what personalities are going to be featured in a bobblehead or is that out of your area uh, yeah, we definitely, uh, something that we are on a daily basis thinking of new bobblehead ideas. Um, we're not the only ones out there producing bobbleheads. So, you know, a lot of teams and others are out there producing and coming up with ideas, which is great because, you know, we're always excited to see new bobbleheads. And then even at the museum, people can put on, on one of the walls, uh, post a note with their ideas for bobbleheads. And we get uh, some really great ideas from there and, you know, a lot of people request the same bobblehead, and we see a trend and try to get uh, those bobbleheads made. Well, that's fascinating, fascinating. So, so for folks who want to come by the uh, bobblehead, the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame Museum, how can they uh, get in touch with you? Yeah, so our website's the best spot to get information on visiting and hours and things like that, uh, which is it's bobbleheadhall, H-A-L-L dot com, uh, open seven days a week. So people can visit. We're right in the downtown area, close to uh, Miller Park, where the Brewers play, and uh, Pfizer Forum, where the Bucks Bucks new home. And so, yeah, very accessible, and uh, hopefully welcoming visitors back again soon. Yeah, it's got to be a a must see. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we have uh, we've been highlighted. The uh, New York Times said we were one of the third one of the places to see and if you spent 36 hours in milwaukee and uh, i've been featured on cnn and a lot of different outlets uh, locally and nationally so it definitely is a, a fun spot you won't find it anywhere else and we have some other cool spots by us we're within walking distance of the harley davidson museum and the, the cheesehead factory where they make the uh, famous cheeseheads that packers fans wear and so 
definitely a, a great spot, a great area to check out some really unique, one-of-a-kind things. Phil Sklar, co-founder and CEO of the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, USA. If you plan on hitting the road to visit the museum, you might want to check your car insurance to see if you're properly covered and are getting a good deal. That's next. is reported for CNN, The Associated Press, ABC News, Fox News, and is in the Press Club Hall of Fame. This is the Ken Robinson Podcast, with radio and television host Ken Robinson. Whether you are relocating to a new state, taking a vacation, or just driving around the block, it's always good to have the right car insurance. But how do you know if you have the right coverage at the right price? Let's get some advice from Toby Stanger, senior editor at Consumer Reports Magazine. She's an expert on car insurance. Toby, we've seen those commercials on TV about saving money on your car insurance by bundling and paying for only what you need, but what's the best way to save on insurance premiums? Well, the main thing you can do is to not do what I did two weeks ago, which is to uh, hit somebody. (laughs) That'll do it. Excuse me? That'll do it. That'll do it. Every at-fault accident can result in surcharges that will stay on your record for three years uh, and make it very difficult if you want to move to another company. So that's number one. Drive safely, please. If you uh, take a a course that is approved by the State Motor Vehicle Agency, a uh, defensive driving course, sometimes that can save you money, too, especially if you're a senior citizen. You can get a discount off of portions of your premium. You can raise your deductibles on your comprehensive and collision coverage. That means you would pay the first hundreds, uh, you know, $200 or so, $250, uh, if you had an accident, um, but the premiums would be lower, and the likelihood that you'll have an accident each year is very low, so the overall savings is going to be greater over time. Is it best to have your auto insurance where you have your uh, house insurance? Uh, Often companies uh, sometimes offer discounts when you have uh, two policies uh, with them. That's correct. Yes, it can save you money um, if you have uh, a couple of uh, policies with the same company. Also, a couple of putting your all your cars on the same uh, with the same company can save you money. Also, insuring your teenage driver under your policy rather than under his or her own policy will save money because teenage drivers uh, are considered very risky by insurers, and if they have their own policies, you can be sure they'll probably be put in the state high-risk pool, which has very, very high rates. Now, what about these companies that advertise uh, they'll find the best rate for you, whether it's with their company or another company? We hear, hear them on the radio all the time and on TV and in magazines. Are, are those companies any good? You, probably are, you could probably do as well just uh, committing a half a day to... Uh, calling companies on your own. Um, we have an example of a young woman in Florida. She's moved to three different states, and each time she calls 20, 30 companies and saves on an average of $500 each time because uh, she is, uh, that's how diligent she is, and she can find the lowest rate. So if you've been with a company for a long time, it doesn't hurt to 
to maybe check your uh, check rates at other companies every year or so, huh? Well, if you've been with it's 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 a it's a hard call. If you've been with a company for a long time, accident free, you're probably getting a pretty good rate, and it's going. It may be hard to beat. Plus, you're going to be treated uh, not as well by a new company because you're not proven with them. Uh, but if you've seen uh, exceptionally high rate increases recently, or um, uh, you just are not satisfied with the service you've received from your company, then it's a good time. It's a good idea to shop, even if you've been with the company for a long time. Don't motorists pay different uh, rates for uh, premiums uh, depending on maybe what state they're in, maybe what city they're in, or, what, or maybe what part of the city they live in? That's for absolutely the same right. That's absolutely right. Um, it's called underwriting. Uh, companies look at all the different factors um, with regard to you, not just your car. Not just how far you drive, uh, but uh, you know whether how old you are, whether you're married, uh, even whether you smoke can have an influence on your premium. Um, all of this is is uh, what they do is the companies look at the experiences of other drivers with your characteristics, and from that they create the rate. But companies, uh, uh, the way they do the underwriting differs from company to company which uh, has the impact of changing the rate from company to company, which is why it's worth shopping. Would it be better for a consumer who lives in an uh, area where uh, rates are high to maybe use their business address as, <laughs> as the address? It's not a good idea to, uh, to fib, because if you're found out, um, they can cancel you. It's, it's better to be as accurate and as truthful as you can. Uh, people try to do things like... Uh, um, you know, if they've got a house in another state, uh, they might try to uh, use that address. Uh, but if you're in an accident and it's found out that, well, you're only in that state, you know, a few weeks of the year, um, you, can be, you can be canceled. And once you're canceled, it is very difficult to get new coverage. So we don't generally recommend fibbing. <laughs> <laughs> now, some companies even advertise uh, lower rates for non-drinkers. Is, that, it, is that a, a good deal? I, I would guess so. I, I hadn't seen that specifically, but I'm not surprised. Drunk driving can be a very, uh, a very serious offense, and it's considered, uh, you know, you can be surcharged dramatically or dropped entirely uh, uh, for that kind of an offense. Now, with the changing economy, uh, a lot of folks have trouble making ends meet, and some, uh, some folks just don't have the, the means necessary or, or can't put the money together to, to, to buy auto insurance. What should they do if they should find themselves in that kind of situation? Well, unfortunately, you really must comply with the law. Um, if you have uh, a car and you're driving it, you have to be insured. Um, every state has minimum liability requirements, and you have to meet those. But um, what you can do is pay that. That's for your liability. Pay what, other, uh, what, uh, what else is required. I'm not um, if you have to have uninsured and underinsured motorist coverage. But you can scrimp on other things. You may, you may have to take a very high deductible on your comprehensive and collision coverage, which is what covers your car, and that will uh, result in a, in, a, um, in a much lower premium. But unfortunately, you really should have insurance. Uh, if you are, again, if you're caught without it, that can result in some very serious penalties. Now, when you buy a car, should you buy it with insurance in mind? Of course, some models, the sporty models, uh, will cost you more in insurance, and if you buy some, uh, some models with uh, features like uh, uh, front airbags on, on uh, the left and right sides of the car, you can uh, get a discount. 
is it really worth it to, to buy the extra features with insurance in mind? I wouldn't say uh, that you would uh, make that your first priority, but certainly if you're choosing between two cars, you might want to check with the insurance company to find out if there's a difference in the uh, premium. Tur- a turbo engine is a typical example of something that can add uh, more than 10% uh, to your premium. Um, but it depends on where you live, how much that 10% is really going to be. It might just be $30. It might be $300. Um, but a tur- because turbo is considered uh, something that can improve the, uh, the speed of the car and, 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 and I guess, result in, in higher accidents, it, by some companies, it's, co- it's considered by some companies to be riskier. So it is something to consider, but I wouldn't put it first in your list when shopping for a car. But if you uh, buy a sports car with four doors, that seems to, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the higher rate doesn't seem to be quite as high. Is that I didn't correct? I realize that. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> we hear that's why a lot of uh, manufacturers started putting four-door four, four door models together on some sports vehicles uh, so they can call them a sedan <laughs> instead of a sports car. Well, I don't really know if the, if the insurance companies are fooled by that. <laughs> All right. Well, any other advice uh, for folks who want to save money uh, buying auto insurance? Um, the main advice is just to look carefully at your coverage. Uh, if you feel comfortable talking to an agent about it, that's what you should do, or you can call uh, one of these uh, direct writing companies. Um, but you can save by looking at each coverage and tailoring it to your needs. There are some coverages that you may not need. Towing insurance, for example, if you belong to uh, uh, the AAA you may not need towing insurance because it may already be covered under your membership. And um, some coverages are really worth buying more of, such as liability. Other coverages, comprehensive and collision, you probably can save money by taking higher deductibles. So look at each piece individually. Very good. Toby Stanger, Senior Editor at Consumer Reports Magazine. Up next, how to be polite during contentious times. Why not join thousands of stock market traders who make informed decisions thanks to the premium features of Finviz Elite? They receive robust, real-time stock quotes, pre-market and after-market data, advanced visualizations, backtesting, along with much more. Finviz Elite has one of the best stock screeners in the business, plus profitability research on 100 technical indicators. Finviz Elite is also packed with 24 years of historical statistics and numerous custom filters to help you sort it all out. Receive email notifications about important events, portfolio changes, and stock ratings, all within an ad-free interface at a price everyone can afford. Get full details about Finviz Elite at krobcollection.com. Welcome back. James O'Connor is author of the book Cuss Control. He feels society is dealing with an epidemic of profanity and is in need of practical suggestions for breaking a habit that has led to the decline of civility and good manners. James is also founder of the Cuss Control Academy. 
He's appeared on more than 100 TV shows, including Oprah, The View, CBS Sunday Morning, and The Today Show. Thank you so much, James. Tell us how you came to launch a crusade against cussing. Well, a couple of years ago, I just kind of got tired of hearing so much swearing in public. Uh, I'd actually been a swearer most of my life, and I think I was a little bit more discreet about it, was careful about who I was swearing in front of. And these days, you just kind of hear it everywhere. People are very inconsiderate. And, of course, there's more and more swearing on, in movies and on uh, cable TV and even network TV and in the music. So I decided I would stop swearing so I wouldn't contribute to this decline in civility. Found it a very difficult habit to break after many, many years and could not find any books on how to break the habit, so I decided to develop some techniques and write the book myself. Well, I remember curse words used to be confined to people in private situations, uh, uh, shop talk, that kind of thing, uh, men and men uh, talking among themselves or women talking in private, but now it's uh, a public thing. Yeah, it really has evolved, I guess we could say, deteriorated maybe we could say. Uh, it's just become uh, kind of a way of speech for a lot of people, but the fact is it still offends a lot of people and it just really isn't proper. What's the danger of this? Uh, what's the danger of cuss words becoming more prevalent in society? Well, there's a number of reasons. In fact, in my book I list 25 of them, but uh, to give you some of the big ones, uh, it is contributing to a decline in civility and good manners. Uh, it does offend a lot of people. They just never tell you that they're offended. And it really is a reflection on on you. It, it reflects the way people judge you, you know, whether you're intelligent, mature, have emotional control, etc. But judging from uh, television and uh, popular music and, and especially the movies, uh, cussing would seem to be the in thing. Yeah, and I think that's the popular culture that's telling us that, and it's a shame because we do tend to copy and imitate what the popular culture does. Uh, and it has become more standard. I mean, the language does evolve, there's no question. But if you hear a damn or a hell, it's not so bad. But the F word and the MF word and a few other words are still pretty abrasive and hostile. And that's that's really part of the problem is a lot of the swearing that we do is just for fun, but a lot more of it is is uh, the tone and the attitude behind it is what's offensive. How so? Well, it can be very belligerent. Uh, it's just the way we talk to each other. When someone says to you, uh, you know, hey, you know, the Indians uh, won uh, four games in a row, and you say, well, who gives a flying whatever? But we, we, we bark at each other. We're hostile. We're more abrasive and confrontational. Or we're just bitter, we're just complaining, we're criticizing, we're expressing a lot of negativity with a lot of our swearing. So it's put like a, a, a tougher edge on society, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And it's, un, it's just unnecessary, and it, it creates an overall atmosphere that's just a little bit harsh and uh, unpleasant. People who don't cuss, are they usually labeled as, you know, being out of it or being square? Well, it's it's interesting. Uh, sometimes they are, but for my book, I decided to interview people who don't swear at all. And my first thought was, well, where am I going to find them? <laughs> but I started asking around and discovered that even some friends of mine, people who I thought I knew pretty well, were non-swearers. I just wasn't aware of it. But what I discovered when I interviewed these people, including strangers, I interviewed people from all over the country, men, women, uh, all ages, um, they all had very good character. You know, they weren't simpletons by any means. They were simply people 
who chose not to use this language, but they were also even-tempered people, uh, respectful people, tolerant people, a lot of really good qualities. So their use of language is like an indicator, a barometer as to the, uh, the character of the person, the quality right. of their life. Right, and we don't, we don't really realize that, and that's why I put all these people together in one chapter, and it's called, Why Don't These People Swear? And I want the reader to ask themselves that question as they read it and then they'll recognize that, hey, there's, there's something special about these people. Now, these people, they don't swear because they feel it compromises their integrity, or is their integrity uh, just exclusive of, of cussing? Yeah, they just don't like the sound of it. There's kind of different reasons. It was just simply something they were told was nasty, they shouldn't do it when they hurt children, and they just never picked it up. I asked every one of these people, I said, okay, what do you say when you really get mad? You must say something. And most of them had to stop and think, and they'd say, well, I take a deep breath, I count to ten, I walk away, come back to the problem later. In other words, they handle it in a very mature way, whereas most of us simply fly off the handle and just blurt out the swear word. So not cussing can also be seen as a uh an indicator of self-control, someone who has uh, control not only over themselves but their environment as well. Right, exactly. Hmm. And, and also someone who just doesn't do a lot of uh, complaining and whining and grumbling. They do some, obviously, because everybody does, but uh, they don't do it quite as much. They learn to cope, not cuss, to deal with situations as they come. You know, we can't all do that, and we can't all do that all the time, but, you know, these people uh, at least make an effort. Now, is there such a thing as casual cussing? Yeah, I break all swearing into two categories, the casual and the causal. The casual is the informal, relaxed, uh, lazy language. We just use the swear words because they seem to kind of work for us in many, many applications. The causal swearing is swearing that's caused or provoked by anger, frustration, annoyance, irritation, impatience, things like that. Both of uh, those uh, kinds of uh, usages have the same kind of impact or a different impact? Different impact. Uh, mm -hmm. For example, the casual swearing, if a bunch of guys are together and they all swear and they're just talking and using this language, it's not a big problem. But if they happen to be in a public place, like a family restaurant, then it's not a good thing. So it's just, And that's the easiest one to control. There's no emotion there behind it, so it's just a matter of thinking of a more appropriate word or expression. All right. Now, what if somebody says, uh, well, I, I do cuss too much, and I want to stop? Mm -hmm. How do you go about stopping? Well, first you do recognize that it doesn't do you any good. I mean, people will argue that it feels good to swear, but the fact is it sounds bad. It makes you look bad. So if you start with that premise... Uh, you can do a number of things. You can say, um, uh, I'll just use different words wherever I can, uh, especially with exclamations. You know, we shout out a swear word, whether it's in anger or in joy, either way. But there are words that we can use that, that maybe we use anyway when we know we can't swear, like good grief, oh, man, holy cow, holy mackerel, for crying out loud, uh, mercy. I mean, these are all expressions that we use. So just just pick those and say, I'm going to use this expression. Like I use shoot all the time because that's real real close to what I, I really want to say. <laughs> well, is it hard to do? Is it hard to, to substitute? To, yeah. I guess it takes time, huh? It does. <laughs> there's there's overnight, no overnight cure here. You know, it's like 
going on a diet. You don't lose 20 pounds in a day, but you can drop a few words here and there. And, you know, when you hear yourself swear, you just pause and say, oh, what word could I have said instead, or how could I have rephrased that so it didn't sound so abrasive? My mission is to try to get people to be more careful about when and where they swear. My book is called Cuss Control, not Cuss Elimination. It is something that we do to communicate and express ourselves, but we've got to be more careful about where we do it and also more careful about the impression we're making. People don't realize the power of words. They really don't. They really don't realize that people are also judging them and developing a viewpoint towards their character and their personality that's often not very favorable if the language is pretty rough. Now, folks that really have trouble breaking the habit, they, there are cuss control uh, support groups out there, groups people can join? Well, you can you know, just form your own. I mean, I think one thing you can do, too, if you want to stop swearing is tell your friends or your family, I'm really going to try to cut back. You know, if you hear me swear, tell me, because I may not even know I'm doing it. Or poke me, you know, and more you poke me, the more annoyed I'll get, and I'll finally stop. <laughs> uh, there's all types of little tricks that I've got in my book on, on things you can do, but that's part of it. Is you can let people know you want to clean it up. Yeah, I notice uh, a few of the tri- tricks are uh, have someone record you, record you talk. That's always an eye-opener. Yeah, uh, that's hard to do, but, I mean, uh, if you happen to have a little pocket uh, dick uh, dictaphone or something you can you can get somebody when they're not expecting it and again the book is cuss control the complete book on how to curb your cursing by james v o'connor my pleasure he's also founder of the cuss control academy james and his wife have their own pr firm and have won three awards for the best publicity program in the country for promoting cuss control Did you know you can improve your life without the help of a shrink? It's coming up right after this. With our crazy economy, you've got to save money any way you can, and that includes your cell phone bill. Switch over to Mint Mobile and get talk, data, and text for as little as $15 a month. It's so easy. Pick the plan that's best for you, and Mint will send you a SIM card. Insert it into your phone and start saving. You can even keep your old number. Slash your cell phone bill today with Mint Mobile at krobcollection.com. Now let's visit with Michelle Weiner Davis. She's author of the book Fire Your Shrink Do It Yourself Strategies for Changing Your Life and Everyone in It. She's a licensed clinical social worker and a marriage and family therapist. And you believe it's possible to get your life on the right track without professional help? How is that possible? 
I've been practicing a radically different approach, which aims at helping people really change their lives, not become experts on why they're stuck. Instead of focusing on the past, I help people to envision their future as they'd like it to be, and then help them to identify the specific steps they need to take to make that happen. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in helping them figure out why they're stuck. I'm helping. I'm interested in helping them figure out how to get unstuck. And so many people have told me that this is a major relief to them because when they used to analyze themselves to death, not only couldn't they find a solution, but they felt worse. They felt hopeless, like there was nowhere else to go. There is another place to go. And the interesting thing I've discovered in working this way although it was really kind of hard for me to admit, the vast majority of people that I've been working with, in between the call for an appointment in therapy and the first appointment, already started to solve their problem without my help at all. So what that told me was that really most people do have the solutions within themselves. They just don't know that they do. But today's society, you're constantly told you need something. You need somebody you need a support group. There are support groups for, for every you ailment bet. known to, <laughs> to you humanity. Bet. And you're constantly told you can't do it alone. Exactly. You're, you're absolutely right. And I'm here to tell people just the opposite. You can do it alone. It's not that therapy is a bad idea, and I'll talk about that in a little while, but you really have so many more answers within you if you know where to look. You know, there's a guy named Milton Erickson, and he was a psychiatrist who uh, some say is the, uh, what was the father of a very innovative uh, brief therapy approach, and he grew up on a farm. And one day when he was a young man, he was standing by his farm, and a horse came into his yard. It had a bridle and a saddle, so he knew it was lost. He hopped on top of the horse, got it on the road, started walking down the road, horse got distracted, got off into a field, ate a little bit, and Milton Erickson would kind of direct him back on the road. Well, they did that for a while. About four miles later, the horse pulls into some other farmer's farm. And the farmer's standing there. He says, you know, that horse has been gone. for my, That's my horse. He's been gone. How did you know he lived here? And Milton Erickson's response was, I didn't know. The horse knew. I just had to keep him on the road. Mm -hmm. And I really do believe people know it's just a matter of keeping on on the right path. And with the techniques that I write about in Fire Your Shrink, I help people to figure out the tools so that they can begin to solve their own problems and find relief rather than becoming experts on the, the meaning of their lives. Mm -hmm. What do most people want to change these days? Well, it's a combination of things. I think a lot of people uh, come in because they're feeling depressed. Some people come in because they're feeling anxious. But I think, you know, probably number one thing that people come in is complaining about relationships in their lives, whether it's not getting along with your spouse and, and you're thinking about divorce or your kids are driving you crazy. I think that that probably is the number one problem is the relationships in your lives. Mm -hmm. Let's start with depression. Um, how do you handle something like that? Now, I guess not you know, a, a serious depression, I suppose, or su suicidal depression, but uh, a lot of people have depression from sure. time to time. Sure. How do you combat something well, like that? Well, first of all, I mean, it, as you just pointed out, a lot of people have depression from time to time. Everybody's going to have a bad day, and that's not what we're talking about here, because if you're going to run to a therapist every time you think you have a bad day, keep therapists in business for a long time. <laughs> There's a, there are two very simple ideas that I apply to all kinds of problems, whether it's depression or getting along with your kids or getting along with your spouse. Um, it, here they are. If what you're doing works, keep doing it. And if what you're doing isn't working, do something different. Let me tell you what I mean. Let's just take the, pro the problem of depression. Mm -hmm. 
when people come in and they tell me they're depressed, what they're focusing on is all the times in their lives where they feel lousy. And they, it appears that those times are seamlessly connected to one another. There's nothing in between. But the truth is there usually are times that go a lot more smoothly. It could be for an hour, it could be for a week, it could even be for a year. And so what I help people to do is to say to themselves, what's different about the times when I'm feeling a little better, when things don't seem quite so rough? Find out what you're doing differently, what the people around you are doing differently, and to become detectives about the differences between problem-free times and problematic times so that you can do more of what's working when you're not depressed. That, that sounds too simple, though. It does sound simple, doesn't it? It, it? In theory, it's incredibly simple. It's exquisitely simple. But it's not always that simple to apply to your life because you're, we're, we all tend, I don't know, it's human nature to be fixated on what isn't working. I mean, I'm very much aware that when I go to the dentist, I anticipate that I'm going to be in pain all the time. But it, the truth of the matter is I'm, I have, there are two states. I'm either in pain or braced for imminent pain, <laughs> you know, and nothing in between between people in relationships when things aren't going all that well they're either fighting or waiting for the fight to happen but what they're forgetting is that there is time there are times when the fights aren't happening mm -hmm. what are you doing differently are you more complimentary are you kinder are you more thoughtful um, are you more responsive to the needs of your spouse those are the things that you need to figure out because if you want more intimacy, more love, more connection to the other person in your life, you have to do the things that leads to those results. Mm -hmm. So basically, look at your life and concentrate on, on the things that work. That's part of it. Then there's, a, then there's part B, okay. which is if what you're doing isn't working, do something different. Now, I can read your mind. You're probably thinking, well, that's a pretty simple concept, too. <laughs> and it is a simple concept, but here's what happens in the real world. If you have a problem in your life, you do something to solve it. If it works, great, you go along your merry way. But if it doesn't work, most people, instead of thinking of something entirely different to do, do more of the thing that isn't working. We say to ourselves, I probably didn't try hard enough, so I'll do it even more. If a parent discovers that a kid is sneaky, what does the parent do? Well, the parent... Uh, Starts to spy on the kid, yeah, right? And and usually then the ask a lot of questions. Okay, and, and then what does the kid do when the kid figures out that the parent's being more of a spy? Gets more sneaky. He gets more <laughs> sneaky. You got it. When the kid gets more sneaky, then the parent gets even better at spying. Mm -hmm. And so on and so on. And so somewhere you have to interrupt that unproductive cycle. And you can take charge by saying to yourself, this isn't working. I need to do something different. And if you are willing to be the one to make the change, I guarantee you that contrary to conventional wisdom, which suggests the only person you can change is yourself, that's baloney. You can change other people, but you must begin by stopping to do the thing that isn't working. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned that cycle that we all get into from time to time. It's kind of right. like chasing your tail. That's right. And you mentioned that uh, you have to tell yourself, well, am I the person who's, who's going to break that cycle? But so often you have people who are so stubborn, I'm not going to be the first one to break the cycle. This person is going to do it, and I'm going <laughs> to make them do it. Well, you're absolutely right, and you know what? I wrote another book called Divorce Busting, and I would tell you that 90% of the people that I see who end up divorcing, it's because they're waiting for the other person to change. So God bless you if you want to sit around <laughs> and wait for other people to change, but what I'm here to tell you is that don't change because you think that you're wrong. 
change because you want that other person to change. And sometimes people are much more motivated to make those changes if they think they're going to get more of what they want from the other person. Mm -hmm. let, me, let me give you a quick example. Um, I was working with a woman who loved her husband, but she had one pet peeve. He worked at home, and occasionally he'd be at his computer, and he looked kind of upset, and she'd walk out and say, what's wrong, like a concerned wife, and he would say, this is really hard, I'm having a frustrating time, and she would comfort him and reassure him that if he just stuck with it, it would be okay. Well, contrary to what she was expecting, he got angry at her because he felt she couldn't understand how complex his situation was if she's giving that superficial advice. Well, needless to say, when he got annoyed, she got very upset because, after all, she was just trying to help. They had this routine argument on almost a daily basis. So one day when she figured out that what she was doing wasn't working, she decided to do something different. She did an experiment. The next time she saw him angry over his computer, she said, what's wrong? And he started to complain about getting this particular task done because he hadn't received proper training for it. And she was quiet for a moment. She said, I can't believe that your boss expects you to get that done when you weren't at the seminar to learn the skills. Where does he come off to expect that of you? And you know what he said? He waited a minute and he said, I have a feeling that if I stick with it for a while, I'll figure it out. No mm -hmm. argument. She was totally shocked. It wasn't shocking to me, though, because if one person changes his or her behavior, the relationship must change. It's a law of the universe. Mm -hmm. Well, relationships are complex in, in a way, I guess, uh, in that uh, there are so many variables going on at the same time. Um, do you think that uh, people expect too much from relationships these days? I mean, gee, you go to the movies and, boy, everything's wonderful. And even the people that have problems in the movies or in soap operas, they, they work them out and everything's just fantastic. But it doesn't work that way in real life. It's, you're absolutely right. It doesn't work that way in real life, in relationships, and even in your own life, even if you're not involved with another person. We really can't expect life to be nirvana. I mean, w certainly we all have our bumps along the way. And, and I think, unfortunately, uh, in when you watch television or read articles, you're, you assume that everything really needs to be flawless in your life. And it's simply not true. Everyone, even me, everyone has their share of problems. And what you should do is really recognize the strength that you have in overcoming those hurdles, hundreds, thousands of hurdles in your life, and recognize that you do have the ability to solve problems and the solutions within you if you know where to look. Mm -hmm. Do people really want to change? So often we hear people talk about changing their lifestyle or changing their job or changing wherever they are now to where they want to be. But you look at people and we all get into habits and routines that you know and sometimes you suggest that a habit be broken and boy you're in trouble <laughs> <laughs> i think you're right i think that the, the good thing about habits is we become very comfortable. I really do think that when someone's unhappy that they do want to change, and it's sometimes the fear that's holding them back, and it's sometimes the lack of knowing specifically what to do. But if you start to see, as I have in my practice and the, all the people that I've worked with, 
that by taking a small step forward, you can begin to see immediate results. And I'm not talking weeks, years, or you know, months or years. I'm talking within days. If you begin to change your actions, stop talking, stop contemplating your navel. But if you begin changing your actions, you can see results. And it's so rewarding and refreshing that it gives you the courage you need to keep moving forward and breaking more of those habits. Okay, we're talking to Michelle Weiner-Davis, author of the book, Fire Your Shrink, Do-It-Yourself Strategies for Changing Your Life and Everyone in It. What, what kinds of problems do most people bring, bring to you? You name it. I mean, all different kinds of problems, um, whether it's working with a parent whose teenager refuses to follow rules and is getting D's in school. Um, it's somebody who has anxiety attacks on a daily basis, somebody who feels incredibly depressed and feels that their tomorrow is not worth living. Um, lots and lots of people. I've gotten a reputation of being the divorce buster because my last book was called Divorce Busting, where I taught people how to apply these very quick skills to changing their lives to save their marriages and so since I have that reputation I get a lot of uh, cases where people are unhappy in their relationships and they really want to make them better so they can keep their families together mm -hmm. um, you name it all different kinds of problems people who want to be more motivated at work people who want to do away with problems of insomnia um, just like any therapist anywhere deals with, um, the problems are very varied and so are the solutions. Mm -hmm. Is it possible to, to prevent a divorce or work things out? Because uh, the, I guess the common uh, conception today is that, is that if, it, if you can't work things out, if things don't fall into place on their own, they're just not going to work out and you might as well go on and find someone else. I, you know, something, that sort of philosophy, I think, has begun to fizzle. We now have had 20 to 30 years to look at the results of disposable marriages and rampant divorce, and people have finally learned that divorce doesn't supply the solutions that they thought they did. In fact, you know, when you're unhappy in your life, you look around for the cause of the unhappiness, and you tend to blame the person whose face is closest to you, which might be your spouse. So you think if you just dump the guy, you know, you're going to get rid of all your problems. But the truth is, number one, you don't really dump the guy, particularly when there are children involved. Mm -hmm. Some people say there is no such thing as a divorce because they tend to be involved in your life. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that, you know, if divorce were the panacea that we all thought that it might have been earlier in the, you know, in the 60s, then we wouldn't be seeing the divorce rates in second marriages. While close to 50% of marriages, first marriages end in divorce, 60% of second marriages end in divorce, and the statistics go up with each uh, successive marriage. That's, uh, so uh, there's an incentive there to, to work things out and to, to get oneself in perspective and to, to buckle down, I suppose. I, I, and it can be done, and you don't have to stay together and be miserable for the sake of the children. There really are new ways to help people um, to figure out how to change what isn't working in a marriage so that you can fall in love again. You can, you can divorce the old marriage and start a new one, but do it with the same person. Mm -hmm. Well, you can divorce your children, and <laughs> we <laughs> mentioned children several times. Right. There's a terrible problem in, in this country with troubled kids, That's kids right. that uh, fall into gangs and, and drugs and, and whatever. How can a parent reach out to those kids and, and turn them around? Well, you know, I w if I had the answer to that, I'd probably be a politician, but <laughs> 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 or maybe not, who knows. 
But I guess what, you know, the sort of conventional wisdom or common sense would suggest that really just staying involved in your kids' lives and really be a part of their lives is the best antidote to um, preventing those sorts of problems. Mm-hmm. How, how, how does a parent deal with the rebellion, though, the, the day-to-day rebellion, let's say, of teenagers? Is there a special mindset or special kind of psychology uh, one should well, use? Well, first of all, parents should always brace themselves as they go through the teenage years with their kids. In fact, my mother sent me a little plaque that I have in my refrigerator, which is, it's a tribute to mankind that we allow our teenagers to live. And the reason she <laughs> sent it to me is because I have a teenager. <laughs> I have a almost 15-year-old daughter who really tests everything I know about human relationships. It goes right out the window. Um, it, it is a very difficult time, and but I must say that there's a technique that I write about in Fire Your Shrink called do a 180, and it, perhaps it's a fancy form of child psychology which really works with people of all ages. Um, there was a young girl who was in, although she wasn't a teenager, the same philosophy applies. She was in a class, and um, the teacher was very concerned because she wasn't talking. Mm-hmm. So she tried. The teacher tried to get her to talk, and the girl was still quiet. And the more the teacher tried to get her to talk, the quieter the girl became. And then. The whole, all of her classmates were in on the deal trying to get this kid to talk. So they called me in for consultation, and what I said to the teacher, I said, what are you doing? And she said, we're trying to get her to talk. I said, is it working? She said, no. I said, may I make a suggestion? What's that? Do a 180. She said, what do you mean? I said, do the opposite of what you've been doing. Just do it as an experiment. She said, well, what do you mean? I said, why don't you tell her that you're, you have been making a mistake in trying to get her to talk and getting her to talk, because the truth is that if she had something important to say, she'd probably say it, so she probably doesn't have any think she needs to say right now and get everyone to stop. Well, guess what happened as soon as she said that? The next thing I was called in for a consultation a few weeks later to get the girl to be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) So again, if what you're doing isn't working, and this is often the case with teenagers because they really test their limits in trying to get a reaction out of you, try really shocking them by doing the unexpected, and you'd be surprised at the results. Mm. All right. Well, that sounds like good advice. And we want to thank you for joining us today, Michelle Weiner davis author of the book, Fire Your Shrink. She's a licensed clinical social worker and a marriage and family therapist based in Colorado and has written several other books, including The Sex-Starved Marriage and Healing from Infidelity. Well, I hope you found this podcast interesting and informative. Our music, of course, is by H Beats. That's H Beats with a Z. Feel free to subscribe and tell your friends about our podcast. Thank you so much for listening.